This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got a special guest on the podcast. Her name is Chloe Malas. So she is a journalist and entertainment reporter for CNN and HLN. And she's the granddaughter of World War II pilot Frank Murphy, who authored the book, which is the main subject matter for today's interview, and that's Luck of the Draw. Okay, so in this book, Frank Murphy details the almost unbelievable air war that took place during World War II. Murphy was one of the few survivors from the 100th Bombardment Group, a.k.a. the Bloody 100th. Also in the book, Murphy details when his B-17 was shot down over enemy territory in Germany and spending you know, almost two years in a German per- prisoner of war camp. Uh, the book is actually being re-released by St. Martin's Press, and Chloe and her mother Elizabeth, Frank's daughter, each wrote forewords for the new version, which is a very interesting thing. And this name is going to sound very familiar to you, Frank Murphy and some of these other names involved later on this year because this story, Frank's story, is going to be featured prominently in an upcoming Apple TV Plus television show called Masters of the Air, which will release later this year, like I said, and the project is headed up by Steven Spielberg and stars Tom Hanks. So this is like a, a, a big deal. Like it's going to be a huge thing. And the fact that this book is being re-released, this book was written by Frank Murphy. And the thing about this book, I read every page of it. And as you're digging through it, it's incredibly detailed. So if you're a military historian type person, it's very, very interesting because there's so much detail, but then there's also a narrative arc because you see that with, with these books, some books just have a narrative. Others, other books are just details. This is both. And so I actually gave this book to a buddy of mine that is a pilot and it, you know, he's really nerding out on some of the details. Whereas I was nerding out on the actual story because it's a, it's a crazy story of resilience. Cause this was a young man that was a pilot at a time where they were literally throwing human suffering at, at this air war. And they didn't really know they were kind of experimenting with these people. And a lot of people died. A lot of people died, but these men kept saddling up in their airplanes and kept going to war. Like, it's just an astonishing, like, again, we, we talk about this in the interview with Chloe. We, we have our problems today, but it's like, it's not the problems that these guys had. And they just kept going back up there. One of the things that I really enjoyed about this conversation with Chloe is it was, we weaved in and out of the narrative of the story of Frank's life and the story that he wrote down in luck of the draw. And the thing is, is that that's, that's what a conversation is because there are interviews. There are like, okay, I'm going to ask you this question and then I'm going to ask you the next question and then poof, I'm a genius. But we kind of weaved into and out of his story. And we left a lot of the details on the table because guys, it would have been impossible. We could have done a 10 hour interview today and it would not have been able to really even scratch the surface on the detail that is in this book but I really really enjoyed my time talking with her about a myriad of different issues and I really enjoyed digging into the book as well so guys I'm not going to keep these people I'm not going to keep Chloe from you any longer so without further ado let's get into it Chloe Malas welcome to Undaunted Life a Man's Podcast hey happy to be here 
So we're going to cover a lot of ground today, and I was already like very impressed with all your energy, so hopefully you can sustain that through our entire discussion today. But you are a journalist and an entertainment reporter by trade, but I'm pretty certain up to this point, I've never actually talked to someone who that is their job, and that's what's in their job description. So how in the world did that happen for you? I mean, it's the only thing that I was good at because I'm terrible at math, terrible at science. I didn't make great grades. Um, And I joined the newspaper in high school when I was growing up in Dallas, Texas. I was at a new school and it was a place to make friends. And, you know, I'm kind of a weirdo and like sort of a nerd, but I just, you know, found a group of people that really embraced me. And that's kind of the beginning of where I am now. So when I went to college, I went to Auburn University, War Eagle for anybody out there. All right. Um, I love the SEC. And I, you know, I grew up down in Texas, grew up also in Atlanta, Georgia. And so I went to Auburn and I immediately jumped into the school's TV station there. And I was like, wow, like not only do I love print and newspaper and just writing and talking to people, but I also love the element of television, not just being on it, but behind the scenes and how the sauce is made. Um, And after college, I came up to New York for an internship and my whole family was like, are you really serious? You're going to go be a Yankee? I'm like, I don't know. And here I am 15 years later. Maybe I am one now. But um, I have two kids, and I'm up here now, and I'm invested. I am I am an invested New Yorker now, and I work at CNN covering entertainment, not politics, much to the <laughs> happiness of my very southern Fox News watching family. Um, they do watch CNN, but only when I'm on. Um, and yeah, so here here we are. And I fell into covering entertainment and celebrities. It was really just because um, I thought it would be fun and it would be not so depressing, but it can be depressing and not that fun sometimes. Yeah, it can certainly be depressing. Well, I will tell you, as a representative to all of us here in the South or pseudo-South, we will always accept you back because you, you go up to Yankee Town and then you know eventually you get worn out with that. We'll always welcome you back with open arms. But one quick thing on the whole like entertainment reporter thing, because it's kind of easy to pick on that because it seems kind of vapid and it's all these like people that are just like seemingly nonsense people doing nonsense things. And it's like, why do we care? But I do find it funny that especially conservatives uh, in the conservative space and, and me included, we love to point at the Oscars and the Grammys and like, oh, those relics of the past. No one even watches them anymore. And then you spend the first 30 minutes of your show the following Monday talking about stuff that happened at the Grammys or the Oscars. But uh, for, for you, what is it like covering that? Because it can be a bit of a palate cleanser from the rest of the news cycle, which can be like incredibly like concerning and infuriating at times. Well, you know, it's interesting that you point this out. So I've lived like a couple different lives in this space. So for seven years, I worked for this website called Hollywood Life, and I did real gossip and who's dating who and who's married to who and who's wearing what and who's had a baby and all that kind of gossipy, mindless stuff that you read to, you know, get your mind off other things. Um Of course, I've covered red carpets throughout my whole life. But when I came to CNN, I really leveled up. And at CNN, it's uh, it's the more serious, you know, people being 
charged with crimes and people making news for not the best things. So uh, I covered a lot during the Me Too movement, and I really surprised myself. I did a huge story about Kevin Spacey right after I came back from maternity leave, and it got him fired from Netflix, right? So I think that I realized that some of the stuff that I could do, not just on the Me Too movement, but could be really impactful. And so... um, I always had imposter syndrome, I think, especially Mm -hmm. growing up in the South and then moving up to New York where you feel like you're not the smartest person in the room. Um, And I've just really gained a lot of confidence being here at CNN. I've covered some massive, massive stories. I don't really cover red carpets and things like that. I'm not really covering movies and TV shows. But when something is huge, we will cover it. And I did go to the Golden Globes this year, Mm -hmm. um, which was awesome uh, to be there. But Sure. I mean, I think that in the grand scheme of things, it is escapism, a lot of what I cover um, and can also make you feel better about your own life. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. When you see people that you looked up to for whatever reason and you see them fall, it does make you feel a little better. Now, I don't want to completely throw my my interview off from the very, very beginning here, but you did mention one thing. So I had one quick follow up on the Me Too movement. So obviously when it was happening at the time, you would be hard pressed to find somebody that was against the movement in its most pure form because like sexual sadist taking advantage of men and women in order to, you know, satisfy themselves, but then also to propel careers, just nasty, ugly stuff. But it seems like the Me Too movement has kind of eaten itself a little bit, especially when you see certain people that were caught up in the Me Too movement, uh, perhaps the the former mayor of the city that you live in right now. And then you have people from that movement that were kind of helping them get out of trouble. And then you also see these things about people coming out, male and female, saying these things happen and then they didn't actually happen. And it seemed like a lot of people hopped on the Me Too bandwagon and it was like it lost its purity almost immediately because so many people were throwing things out there that weren't necessarily in the in the vein of some of the things that were were happening, some of these actual gross, horrific, sadistic things. So do you kind of see that? Because we don't really hear about the Me Too movement anymore, but it's like we should still talk about people taking advantage of other people sexually, sexual assault and, and the rest of the gamut. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, look, it's a really great point that you bring up. And I think that what it comes down to is that it's complicated, right? I mean, there's a clear right and wrong there. And I think that it started a dialogue and a conversation that was really important, especially when it comes to like zero tolerance in the workplace, right? And um, I think that some people out there who were really taking advantage of their power, they got in trouble, right? And some of these people what's coming to them is still coming to them, right? And I think that it just raised awareness. And I think that for a while, collectively, everybody was on the same opinions of it all. But I also think that it went on for a while and there was Me Too movement fatigue and people were like, well, I can't even tell someone they're attractive anymore. I'm going to get fired. And really, that's really just oversimplifying it all, right? We all know in our hearts what's wrong and what's what's not right to do. Um, And I think that with anything, you know, whether you put a label on the movement or not, I think that, like I said, it's complicated. People's motives can be complicated and not pure. I think that talking about what's right and wrong and how we treat people is a conversation that should never go away, whether we call it the Me Too movement or we don't, right? Whether we look at what's happened within the actual organization times up itself or not, right? And I think that you see it across all different types of movements from politics to social issues, right? Nothing's ever 100% perfect, but 
I do hope that uh, people's men, women, whoever it is, abusing power is always exposed. And I've really enjoyed reporting on just exposing abuses of power in general, just because I want to help people. And I have people who come to me with stories all the time and they reach out to me with, with stories. And, you know, it, it can sometimes take over a year for me to work on these stories. They're really emotional for both myself and, and the victims and, you know, so I've really enjoyed trying to make an impact and not just cover red carpets and who's wearing what. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But for me, in terms of what I'm doing, and if I get a finite amount of time on this earth, I want to do things that are going to help change lives. I mean, I don't mean that to sound like cheesy, not every day, but I want right. to do what I can, right, to have a meaningful impact. So I hear what you're saying. I think it's complicated, right? But well, I think that if you scale it, if you strip it all back, last thing I'll say is that it had the right of intentions. And I think that there was some real good that came out of it. And I don't think it's over, calling it yeah. Me Too or not. Well, you use the word fatigue. One thing that we should never fatigue of is actually fighting against the predations of evil people that are trying to hurt image bearers of Christ. What we shouldn't, what we should fatigue of is witch hunting or, you know, uh, blaming people that aren't actually the people that you should be blaming. And so it's making sure that the crosshairs are on the right target. And I think that that's something that, that maybe got a little bit out over its skis in terms of this movement. But I want to rewind the clock back to when you were just a little girl growing up in either Texas or Georgia, can't remember which, but you grew up the granddaughter of Frank and Ann Murphy. And so Frank Murphy is obviously going to be the center point of our discussion today. But Frank was a World War II pilot. But obviously, like my my grandfather, my great-grandfather served in World War II, but I was so young whenever I was growing up with him, that was never something that we talked about. It was something that I talked about with, you know, his kids and, you know, his grandkids after he had passed away, unfortunately. But for you, what was it like growing up being the granddaughter of the Murphys? And then I guess, when did you find out about his World War II stuff? Because that, you know, since you on a different trajectory as well. I mean, look, I would sleep over at my grandmother and grandfather's house almost every weekend uh, with some of my cousins. And the conversation at dinner always turned to World War II because I had a cousin who ended up going into the military. He went to Virginia uh, to VMI, Virginia Military Institute, and then he ended up joining the National Guard later in life. But he was really interested, my cousin Ben. So because Ben was interested, I got to hear all these stories. Um, and. You know, as I grew up, I knew that my grandfather was writing a book about his experiences for the family, about being a prisoner of war. Um, you know, I didn't really appreciate it because I didn't really understand that one day I would be, you know, trying to tell his story that he wrote to the world. Um, funny how life comes full circle. And, you know, it's my mom and her siblings, she's one of four, they never heard stories about World War II because grandpa, their dad, didn't talk about it after the war. It was decades later that I guess he finally felt ready and he spoke about it first with his grandchildren. Then he wrote this book, Luck of the Draw, and I know we'll get to that. And then, um, you know, when I, was in when I was in college is when I really started to take an interest right before he died. Um, so perfect timing. So I got a couple special moments in there. And then after he died and when I was in New York and working, I really found um, an interest with a couple different World War II and military organizations. And that's when I went down this path of learning, really learning and reading the book again and really, really getting to know what my grandfather went through. 
Well, I want to go ahead and get into that because this is the new re-release, guys. If you're watching this on time, this is out now. It is in the show notes. You can pick it up. Luck of the Draw, written by your grandfather, Frank Murphy. But you wrote one of the forewords. So it was you and I believe it was your mother. You both wrote new forewords for the book. Is that correct? Yep. Okay. So in the new forward for the book, which you know we'll get way more into here in just a minute, you mentioned that when you got to college at Auburn, that your interest in the missions that your grandfather was a part of during World War II became heightened. It was a heightened interest for you. And I want to actually read a passage from your foreword that has to deal with this, because it was actually one of my favorite parts of the entire book, and it was in the foreword. And I was like, okay, if this is just a foreword, I can't wait to get to the actual book. So let me read the quote here. During the summer of 2006, after my freshman year at Auburn, I was studying abroad in London, just a few hours away from Royal Air Force Station 139, where my grandfather flew his perilous missions. That summer, I learned my grandfather was diagnosed with cancer. I decided to make the two-hour train ride from London to Thorpe, Thorpe Abbotts, which is now a museum. I'll never forget the museum caretaker, Carol Batley, walking me into the air traffic control tower on the base, which is now filled with the uniforms in glass case, uniforms in glass cases and some personal belongings of the men who were stationed there, including my grandfather's. We walked in and she said, hello, boys, as if they were all still standing there in the control tower. The hair on my arm stood straight up. It's a moment I'll never forget. I then found myself on the runway where I called my grandfather from my tiny prepaid Vodafone. At 84 years old, it was the first and last time I ever heard him cry. I'm here, I said to him. He broke down, responding, that's where it all began. He died the next summer almost to the day on June 16, 2007 at the age of 85. Going there was one of the best decisions I've ever made. Now, I remember reading that, Chloe, and I remember hair standing up on my arms hearing you say what the woman said because it's so casual and I'm even getting like a little bit a little bit teary-eyed right now just thinking about that because that is a different level of reverence for what these men did at this time because here we are in 2023 we don't have the foggiest idea about the the horrible things that happened in the 20th century and some of the ideologies that led to those things but then in a micro those are macro problems Chloe but in the micro sense you have men and women that are trying to keep those stories alive, like you are, and then you have the men and women that actually sacrificed back at that time in order to get to where we are today. So there's a whole lot wrapped up in there, but take me back to that moment when you experienced that, because you could have just been like any bratty granddaughter and be like, yeah, granddad told me weird war stories, but then I moved on with my life and I moved to New York City and I work for CNN now. But no, 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 you, you were so in tune with that story. Take me through that. Well, first of all, I love that you... A, read the book and that you found parts of it meaningful. That means a lot to me. Um, you know, first of all, Carol Batley and her husband, who Ron and Carol, who uh, took over the Air Force Base that's, you know, really overgrown and they've done such a good job turning it into a museum, raising money for the 8th Air Force. And um, they're just a great couple who've dedicated their lives to these men and their memories. And if anybody is in London and wants to take the train out to Dis, it's not far and you can go to visit Ron and Carol. And, you know, it's a small fee to go walk around, but it's really, really cool. Um, and it's, it's, it's a really awesome experience. Um, my grandfather was a really great person, right? So he was a good human being, a good dad, a good husband, uh, an amazing grandfather. He was the person that everybody went to with their problems. He always helped solve those problems. He never raised his voice. He was an even-tempered, just amazing 
person. I really can't find anything wrong with him at all. And, um, and I've tried because I've tried to take him off that pedestal because nobody should be on a pedestal, Mm. but I, he's still up there. I can't, I can't, I can't take him off. Okay. And so it makes me happy to want to talk about this book. He spent seven years writing in the basement after he retired and he did it for, to, you know, keep the memory of his fellow men alive and to also preserve the memories for his grandkids. And, you know, I knew that the book was important when he wrote it and he self-published it with a guy who had actually been in World War II in the 8th Air Force, but they didn't know each other during the war. And he had a small publishing company and they did food and nutrition books. And he was like, well, I'll publish it for you. And it was like, great. Okay. Mm. Um, I don't think my grandfather ever could have imagined that decades later it would get this like huge rollout. Like, and I'd be sitting here talking to you and we would be giving it the red carpet treatment. I think that he would just think it's like wild. And Tom Hanks's quote on the cover, it's so crazy. But yeah, when I went to, I was studying abroad in England and I don't remember if I had made the decision to go before or after I I found out he had cancer. Um, But I knew I needed to go. And that was really important. And I really loved my grandparents. I I still do. My grandma's still alive. So I wanted to go and and do that. That's just kind of like how I am. I know I'm nobody special, but I really care about family connection. And I really care about um, memories. Well, and I think you wrapped up your your forward with this quote, our family's goal is to keep Frank's memory and that of his fellow men alive and pass on the greatness to the next generation. Now, Chloe, that quote came on the heels of you describing your two sons, his great-grandchildren, Leo and Luke, and, you know, them talking about they want to fly planes like great-grandpa and do those types of things. So just in that alone, because I think as of the writing of the forward, you know, your sons were five and three, you're putting, they still are. Okay, they still are. So five no. and three. So you're putting those ideas. You're not putting them there, but you're you're exposing them to these ideas about what it was like. Uh, my, I guess my question for you as a mama bear, because I have two sons. I have a two year old and a ten month old. So a little bit behind oh. where you guys are. And so, when what if they're not five and three? What if they're eighteen and sixteen? And both of them say at that point, I'm going to go fly planes like great granddad did. Like at that, like okay, you're giving me the thumbs up for those of you just listening to this. I know that there are a lot of mama bears and even papa bears out there that you know, considering the trajectory of the military and some of the things we've seen even recently. But just in general, the idea that your kid might be going off to war and may never come back—that is a real possibility if you enter into the military. So. What, what do you think about yeah, that? Yeah, but that's like a selfish mindset, right? Like sure. if my kids want to go and serve their country, hell yeah, okay? And I am all about like one of the thi- one of the reasons why I hope that people read this book and first of all, like I am not trying to self-promote myself. I'm not trying to take money from this book and I'm saying that because it's really important to me to like get that out there. The money from the book goes to the 8th Air Force Museum and to the 100th Bomb Group Foundation, full stop, right? Mm. Like a thousand percent, you can check that out. You can call the publisher, like that's a thing. Like people say a lot of stuff that's not true and that's like a thousand percent, right? So that's the first thing. I know my grandfather worked really hard on this book. I wanna like shout this from the rooftops because I know how hard it is to write and my grandfather spent so long doing research. He didn't just like print his diaries. My grandfather did an insane amount of research, right? So all of that being said, when you read this book, it makes you feel like how I felt when I walked out of Top Gun and I was like, I want to go enlist. Mm -hmm. I want to go fight for my country. And I think that we all need to remember these young boys. Yes, thousands of lives lost. Um, 
I think it was like 28,000 men or 26,000 men died. I need to go back and look, right? Mm. That's a lot of people. And I get that, that if my kids decide to go join the Air Force or go join the military or the Army or go be a Navy SEAL or whatever, that they might not come back. But you also might not come back if you drive to the corner in your car, right? So mm. I'm not going to tell my kids what to what to do. And I want them, you know, if they want to serve their country, that's awesome. Like, I have gotten to know the Air Force. I have become really good friends with former governor of Texas, Rick Perry, our former energy secretary, right? I've gotten to know a lot of vets, Marcus Luttrell. Um, and his brother, um, Morgan, right, mm. uh, down in Texas. I've gotten to know just people in general, and I think it's awesome, veterans, right, and, and active duty military. So I, I wish I had had the chance to serve, to be totally honest with you. I think it's awesome, and I think there's a risk with anything that you do. So if, if my kids want to do it, I would be, if one of my kids joined the Air Force, I would be so effing proud yeah, I, I've I've heard that from a ton of people that that are in your position as well, and I've heard that from Gold Star widows who lost their husbands and have kids that want to be just like Dada, who was a Green Beret or a Navy SEAL or something like that. And that's like, that's like a different level of patriotism and a different level. Like when you have that gold star and you have that folded up flag on your mantle, and you can mm-hmm. still say something like that, it's almost overwhelming. But to go back to, to luck of the draw, to go back to even really the beginning of the book, and we'll walk through uh, your grandfather's life. And, and just to be honest, guys, right here from the beginning, there's so much detail in this book. It's like an embarrassment of riches that Frank put into this book. And like, I, I gave this book uh, to, to one of my buddies who's a pilot who's actually deployed right now. And I was like, Dude, I think I'm too dumb to even understand like some of the the flight stuff and some of the details in here. And he just kind of he just kind of laughed at me because you know it's like you dumb civilian. But it's like you know there, there's so much detail in here. We're we're barely going to be scratching the surface. But and then there's stuff in there like parts of it are a page turner, and then other stuff like you know if you want to skip it, you can. I mean to me it's great from start to finish, but I'm biased. But of course there's like a lot of jargon and. He did a lot of research. There's a lot of data. And if you read the reviews from all the places where, like, it turns out, because I'm not an author, but it turns out if you write a book, you really want some reviews in some of these places like Library Journal or mm-hmm. Kirkus, Publishers Weekly. And they're all like, this is great for anybody that loves military history, right? Mm-hmm. But especially when you get to the parts where he was a prisoner of war and he's talking about being in the prison camps and stuff. And then there were the where he was in the same prison camp as the Great Escape. Right. So when you start getting into that stuff and they're digging out and trying to dig out with tunnels and stuff like that's really cool. You know, that's really neat. He really takes you there. Right. That's the narrative power of the story, because if you're if you're the detail oriented person, dude, you're going to nerd out. But also, if you want a narrative to carry you through a story, you're going to get that as well, because even in the book, you get into, you know, or he gets into, you know, why he even wanted to join the military and why he wanted to become a pilot. But there's a very interesting quote from the introduction of the book, which was written by Ian Hawkins uh, or Hawkins, which I'll read here. During the perilous period in which Frank Murphy flew 21 daylight combat missions, the odds of returning safely were three to one against that fact in itself speaks volumes. Okay, so talk to me a little bit about the fact that it seemed like at this time in in because it wasn't even the Air Force, they didn't even have an Air Force at this time. It was just basically they're they're just kind of getting this off the ground. It seemed like the United States military were throwing human suffering and experimentation at the problem of World War II, trying to gain air superiority during the war. And and again, again, guys, I said three to one against that. Those were the odds that these guys were dealing with. And they all saddled up anyway. So just talk to me about kind of what that was like at that time in terms of these pilots basically figuring it out on the fly, forgive the pun. 
I love it. I love a good pun. Um, <laughs> even if you didn't mean it, that was good. Um, we need like a but I'm bum. Yeah, right? I, uh, I actually but... didn't mean it. And as I was saying it, I was like, oh, you nerd, stop it. But yeah, no, we'll, I we'll like move it. past it. Um, so, you know, look, my grandfather loved his country. I think like many uh, who were growing up in, in, in the United States, like patriotism was high, right? Even though they had gone through the Great Depression. Um, after my grandfather heard about Pearl Harbor, he immediately um, enlisted. Um, and this is before uh, the draft had been reinstated. So he knew that he would either get drafted or go enlist. Um, and he, you know, really, really wanted to be a pilot. Um, he had bad vision up until the end of his life. And although, you know, he wanted to be a pilot, they said, you're really smart and we need navigators. So would you be a navigator? And so he was basically what modern day GPS is, right? Except it was him with little tools in the front of a plane with a map trying to get you safely to where you go and yeah. come back. And I would say that him being such a calm person is probably why he was perfect for that job because he was not easily rattled, right? And that's mm. the kind of person that you want, like leading the way. Um, these guys didn't have very much, they had no experience. Most of them had never served in the military before. And you're going through this training, but you've never seen combat. And it's hard to fathom what combat looks like. Mm. And so, you know, after uh, training in the United States and different parts of the, of the U.S., he gets sent overseas with his with his crew, and the plane was called Bastard's Bungalow, which is like my favorite name of an airplane. <laughs> um, and it's because they said that they're a bunch of bastards who never knew where they were going next. Um, and so, you know, they start flying these missions, and a lot of people didn't agree with it because they were these daylight bombing raids, and the military really felt as though we were not, you know, accurately hitting our targets. And that the best way to do it would be doing it during the day. But doing that during the day obviously makes you a target mm -hmm. up in the sky. And so the Germans were just picking us off. And that's why we lost so many. My grandfather's group. So if you don't know anything about, uh, you know, the Air Force or, or how it was in World War II, there was the... 8th Air Force, 8th Air Force still exists today. Within the Air Force are squadrons, and within the squadrons are bomb groups. My grandfather was in the 418th Squadron, the 100th Bomb Group. Well, that ended up being nicknamed the Bloody 100th. Nobody truly knows why, um, and that is actually going to be, everybody's going to learn about the 100th in the fall on Apple TV, uh, because Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg are making a television show called Masters of the Air, starring Austin Butler. You might have seen him in Elvis recently. Mm -hmm. um, and so you're going to learn all about the 100th on the screen. Um, my grandfather is actually a character in that. But back to what you were saying, I mean, these were very perilous. A lot of men died. And as soon as my grandfather would come back to the barracks and come back to the base, you would always be seeing, he would be seeing someone's trunk and belongings being gathered because they were either captured or killed and sent back home. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure my grandfather had a lot of post-traumatic stress, not to mention that when they were on their 21st mission during something called Black Week, uh, my grandfather had to parachute out of his aircraft that was plummeting to the earth on fire and two of his men died that day. Right. So it's mm -hmm. actually like lucky that he got captured. Um, and it's insane what these guys went through. And day after day, they got up there in these. If you've never been in a B-17, let me tell you, I have. 
They are tin cans. Yeah. They are not comfortable. You're crouched down. It's absolutely freezing cold, too. And you're in these flight suits that have, like, electric currents in them. They're like they're like heating pads, you know? Mm-hmm. And the whole thing is just wild, right? And you got to keep your cool, and you got to shoot your gun, and you got to stay calm, and you got to get there, and you got to hit the target, and you got to get back, and you're watching planes all around you go down. And my grandfather was injured. He, like, like I said, when his plane was hit, shrapnel was in his arm and stayed in his arm until the day he died. Yeah, and we'll certainly get more into those. That was a long answer, no, but anyway. No, yeah. like that, that, that covered <laughs> a lot. These guys were scared. These guys were terrified, okay? And they went and they did it every single day. Like Tom Hanks says on the cover of my grandfather's book, how did these boys do such things? They were boys. Right. I'll read the quote here from the cover of the book. In the pursuit of authenticity, of accurate history, and undeniable courage, no words no uh, matter more than I was there. Read Luck of the Draw and the Life of Frank Murphy and ponder this. How did those boys do such things? When I read military memoirs, Chloe, when I read military history, any of those types of things, that's the thing that I'm overwhelmed by is how they were able to do these things and how they were able to be alive to tell the story because we're so soft in our modern era. We get really, really frustrated when our Wi-Fi doesn't work on an airplane or whenever mm. our mocha comes a little bit uh, you know, lukewarm or something like that. But you did mention in, in your answer there, Chloe, you mentioned the word lucky. So I actually want to uh, read a quote here from the book, which will kind of get us into how we even know that, that it's titled this. So here's the quote. Although it was my 11th mission and depressing losses were not new to me, I was profoundly affected by the African shuttle mission of August 17th, 1943. Nine of our aircraft with their crews, more than half the attacking force of the 100th BG, that's bomb group, were lost. Dozens of bright, talented men were gone. They were close friends with whom I had enjoyed so many hours of joy and so much camaraderie, and yes, occasional sorrow and anguish, both on and off duty. They were gone in one fell swoop. Why some of us survived while others did not was a complete mystery. Though some, though some suggest otherwise, courage and skill played little part in an airman's likelihood of survival in the great air battles over Europe in the Second World War. One was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, or he was not. A bullet had your name on it, or it didn't. It was the luck of the draw. It was as simple as that. So, Chloe, I've talked to men uh, that were as forward as you could possibly be forward in the spec ops community. Okay. So these were the guys that were constantly being shot at and hearing their stories about a guy dying right next to them or them zigging and their other buddy zagging and they made it and their buddy didn't. And the level of guilt that they feel about that is Mm -hmm. astonishing. But at the end of the day, it depends on your worldview, certainly, but it's like, if you think we're just highly evolved chimps that wear pants and talk to each other, then yeah, the, the bullet just didn't have your name on it. But then for other people, it's like, maybe you were left behind to tell the story. Maybe you were left behind to do those things. And we can, we can look at stories like that, Chloe, going back to, to the ancient wars, so the, you know, Peloponnesian wars and things like that. These people that survived and there was no reason to suggest why they did, but they are telling the story. Do you feel that angst? Cause even just describing it, not being a family member, having not served myself i can kind of feel the dissonance i mean it co- it goes back to the title luck of the draw i don't know if i i don't have the answers as to whether or not your life is predestined right like are, are you meant to die a certain day is it luck could i go outside and get hit by a car after this interview god i hope not i have a lot of other things i want to achieve yeah. in my life Um, but could I go out and do that? And was today the day I was meant to die? I don't even know. I don't even know. I don't even think that being Christian can answer that 
question. Like I'm, I'm Christian and I, I don't have those answers and I don't even know. Um, I don't really know what my grandfather thought about that. I think that the title probably just says that it really just came down to luck and it's um, unfair. And when your time comes, it comes. And, um, you know, I never spoke to my grandfather as an adult about post-traumatic stress. And I know we don't call it PTSD anymore. I'm doing a piece on it for CNN, but mm -hmm. we call it post-traumatic stress. And I'm learning a lot about it. Obviously, he had that. Obviously, he had survivor's guilt. Um, and I think that he reconciled all of that by putting pen to paper and just being someone who was good at writing, a smart guy. He ended up becoming a lawyer and he was just kind of like, you know, a secret closeted amazing writer right because like you can want to write a book and you can want to pay tribute to somebody special or, or your servicemen but you might not be able to to do it and the fact that he was able to do it and do it so well is really incredible and in all the research he put into it i think he had survivor's guilt i think that's very obvious in the book you know but the thing is is like my mom and her siblings when my grandfather came back from the war and he got married. My grandfather, my grandma said that she didn't even know he had been a POW. It was his parents who told her. He never talked about it. He never seemed bothered by it. He was a, you know, didn't take it out by drinking or physical abuse or any of those kinds of ways that people might have coped back then um, because we weren't having the conversations about it that we are now. Um, I think that it was just something he buried away, dealt with in his own way, and he put it all down in this book. He certainly did. And as I was reading the book, Chloe, um, mindset was a word that keep, kept coming to mind. Resilience, obviously, you can't read a book like this and, you know, of a survivor of the stuff that even more so the, the stuff that we're going to be getting into and think, well, that's not a really resilient person. That's kind of a stupid thing. But whenever you hear these uh, people talk, whether you're talking about somebody that fought in the global war and terror, someone that fought in Vietnam, either the world wars or any of the world, the wars behind that, you get a sense as to what these men felt like they were fighting for. Cause it's easy for me to sit back in my air conditioned studio and to talk about, well, what these men were doing at that time. But there's a quote. This is my favorite quote from the entire book. So guys, if you hate hearing me read out loud, you're going to hate this episode because there's so many quotable things here, but this is my favorite quote from the book. There was no single right. reason why men who looked death in the face over Europe in 1943 went back into battle day after day. Duty, honor, country played their part, certainly, but not because these precepts were drilled into us by the army. It was just the way we were. In my view, however, the single driving force that kept us going was the bond one felt with the men who stood steadfastly beside him when all their lives were at stake. When I saw my crew climb into the airplane, I had to go and help. However, much combat soldiers wish to escape the horror of war, honor and devotion to a special brotherhood shared by only those who have been in battle together keeps drawing them across unknown fields and skies to their rendezvous with destiny. At the end of the day, combat soldiers do not fight for love of country or because they hate the enemy. They fight for each other. And I remember reading that and it's like, yes, that was like a rubber stamp to every, every man that I've talked to that has lost someone in battle. Yes, they love this country. Many of them signed up after 9-11 to go and even the score, and you can have your opinions about that, but a lot of these men did that specifically for their love of this country. And then when they got there, when they got through training, when they got through BUDS or the Q course or flight school or any of those types of things, then it became about the man to his left and the man to his right and fighting in a phalanx of sorts where you are covering the guy to your left as the guy to your right is covering you. 
Did you feel like when you were growing up, Chloe, did you get that sense from from hearing your dad or your your grandfather rather talk about these men to, to talking about the battle? Or was that something that really just kind of came out in the writing of the story? You know, again, I, I think it came out in the writing of the book for me because I've been able to go back to it so many times for answers because he's not here anymore. But he did talk about a particular death march. It was when he was being moved from one prison camp to another. And um, it was in the snow. It was freezing temperatures. And they had pitiful belongings, he said, and shoes with holes. And they were tired. They were hungry. They had lice. They had pneumonia. They had, they didn't have good nutrition. And they were marching for days in, the, in these terrible conditions um, because the you know, they knew that that they were eventually going to be liberated, the Germans. Um, and so they were trying to delay that and, mm -hmm. and have these guys move to a different prison camp. And my grandfather writes in the book and he talked to me about it, too, growing up about how his fellow men, they would collapse in the snow and they didn't want to continue mm -hmm. and how they would beg and plead with one another. I mean, it's freezing cold. Every man for themselves. Right. You know, like if someone passes out next to you. You know, you don't want to get in trouble for helping them, but they they stopped. They carried each other on each other's backs. They begged each other to continue and this will to live. So I do agree that it came down to his fellow men. And, and that's also what my grandmother, who's 93, we were talking last weekend and we were doing an interview together. How cool is that? That's awesome. I know. I should have had her here, but she doesn't have a computer. Okay. Um, and... She was saying that my grandfather didn't just write the book for his kids and grandkids and future generations. He wrote it as a tribute to the men he served with right. who died and, 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 and lived. So I'm just glad I have this book as a resource because there are a lot of questions that I don't have the answers to. There's so much I wish that I could ask him about. You know, I do have one of the shoes that he wore in that death march. It's a wooden clog. Wow. I have it on my Instagram if anybody wants to see it. He actually wore it. So in the book, he writes about wearing these leather shoes and trading shoes with a fellow soldier who had these like wooden clogs. And because you're walking through the snow, I mean, mm. these are not waterproof. So he wanted the wooden shoes to keep his feet dry, although they're huge. So I don't know how he did that. And I have one of those shoes. So I've given everything to the museums and to the foundations and to, to the places because I think everybody should be able to see all these things and learn. I don't think that they do anybody justice sitting in a closet collecting dust. But I do have in my home office the shoe on top of some books. And I'm not ready to part with that just yet. Um, and that and that and that to me. Like my grandfather's story, even though he's not here anymore, it's taught me a lot about resilience. We lost our home in a um, in a fire um, right before the pandemic started and at the beginning of 2020. And I think that when you know my grandfather's story or you know someone in your family's life who's gone through adversity, it really puts things into perspective. So as an adult and as a mom, looking back on my grandfather's experience really helped me deal with some of the challenges and the shit that I've had to deal with just in my own life, right? And reading this book also puts a lot of things into perspective. You were saying earlier, like, your coffee's cold or, you know, there's traffic or, you know, whatever it is. And everybody has their own heart and everybody has their own shit that they're dealing with, right? But I think that you're not getting up into an airplane every day, you know, being shot at. So I think it really does put things into perspective for you. So if you read this book, you might walk away and be like, you know what? 
life's not that bad. <laughs> right. Uh, so I, I heard something here recently. It was a Warren Buffett quote, and I or it was at least attributed to him. He's like, look, there are 8 billion people on the planet. If, if, they, if your life were a marble and we were to put 8 billion marbles in a big jar and you were to shake that marble up and ask the person, do you want to reach your hand into the jar and pull oh, out a marble? Oh, I know this one. Oh, yeah. I know what you're saying. And, yep. and that's your, and that's the life you take. If you would not take that bet, if you would not reach into that jar and pull out uh, a marble, that's because you are blessed. And because the yep. chance that you pull out a marble and you're a, a young lady in North Korea or something like that. Yeah. It's going to be a way different life for you. No, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. No, I no, I don't want to reach into the jar and I, I'll take my heart. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing, you know, you mentioned the world resilience and I've mentioned it as well here at Undaunted Life. We, we try to equip men to push back darkness by providing content that allows them to develop spiritual, mental and physical resilience. And that's way easier to do back in the day because you'll read these, you know, these uh, excursions to the South Pole that happened 150 years ago or these people that were sold into slavery because their ship uh, wrecked on the, you know, West Coast of Africa or something like that. Like that's actual hardship. It's like, look, you had a lukewarm mocha. They were drinking camel urine to survive. It's like, look, can we not compare the two things? It's like you broke a nail on the subway. No, things are fine. It. I get it. But also, though, Kyle, I'd say that, you know, everybody has their own hard, their own truth, their own shit that they're dealing with. And I have my own stuff going on right now and in life. And, um, you know, everybody has their own personal stuff going on, right? So I might not be in a prison camp, but I might have a really bad day and I can call it a bad day, you know? Um, my grandfather was really religious, though. He was a devout Catholic. I think that his um, spirituality and, and his faith really helped him. He also was really big into music. I played piano my whole life. I don't play anymore. I wish I did. I think it would probably um, be really therapeutic for me. But uh, he played in the Prisoner of War band, by the way. Yep. And that he talks about how music saved his life. And I, I really just, he really was special. And everybody, a lot of people I know love their grandparents and, or love their an aunt or an uncle and all of that. And, you know, when I say my grandpa was one of the good ones, he really was. Like, you're not going to find any secrets about him. He wasn't somebody that talked badly about people. He championed people, but he was a very quiet person, very calm, very peaceful. He didn't suck the energy out of a room. Again, you would you never knew these kinds of stories. He wasn't braggadocious. A lot of people, even in the family, didn't even know what he went through until he wrote this book. Mm. And that's why I, I'm, I'm screaming it from the rooftops. I'm no World War II expert, and I am no expert on military history current past or future you know i'm just a granddaughter who loved my grandpa and i have a platform i guess you could call it and i want to use that platform to try to a get this book out there b raise money for veterans and uh you know would it be cool to make him a bestseller posthumously yeah that'd be pretty damn cool i'm, I'm not though holding out hope for that but I, I do hope that people read the book and are inspired by it you know? Well, and Chloe, you're the product of a life well lived, right? If you think about it at its most core level, because that's what men that are on the other side that have the survivor's guilt, the one that, you know, they didn't take the bullet, the guy next to them took the bullet. When those guys kind of get themselves sorted out, what many of them do is they try to live the best life 
possible so as to honor the sacrifices of the brothers that died around them. And so yeah. uh, that that's a very important thing to talk about. And let's kind of weave it all the way back to Black Week, because you mentioned Black Week earlier. That was October 8th through 14th of 1943. And it's called mm-hmm. Black Week for a reason, because there was a lot of death that happened. A lot of people were, were killed uh, in flying in different missions. And it was during that week in Munster, Germany on October the 10th, so right there in the middle of Black Week, where your grandfather's life changed forever whenever his plane was shot out of the sky. And as you mentioned, two of the people that were on board did not make it, but he did safely make it to the ground on his parachute, which is a miracle of all miracles. Because again, guys, this was in the 1940s. This isn't like people that are base jumping right now to get Instagram lives. Like that was that was a precarious thing to fall from an airplane and land safely on the ground for, from a parachute. The only problem is, is he touched down in Germany, right? And so just kind of take us through uh, some of those details. Again, guys, to get the full picture, you got to get it from the horse's mouth here from the book, Luck of the Draw. But take us through that and then landing in Germany, and one of the first things he hears is, you know, some some woman tell him, for you, the war is over. I love it. I, I, I love that you know all of this so well. It makes me very happy. It warms my heart. You're, you're giving me goosebumps. Um, yes, my grandfather flew 21 missions. Um, I think you had to fly like 25 or 26. Again, yeah. I, I might I might have it wrong. Yeah, before um, you could you could be done. Before you could be done. So he was close. He was getting to the end. Um, and it was October 10th, 1943. And um, out of the 13 bombers, the 13 planes that went up that day in the 100th bomb group, 12 of the 13 were shot down. And so first time my grandfather's jumping out of an airplane, you better hope that that parachute works. And he took him about 20 minutes to land down in the German farmer's field. And I think that there was relief to be captured. Two of his men died that day. So it's really sad. And I think about that a lot, that that's two generations of families and lives that never existed just by chance that day, if you want to call it chance. Um, The only plane that returned that day was piloted by Rosie Rosenthal. And fun fact, his son, Dan Rosenthal, who uh, for a very long time was the president of the 100th Bomb Group Foundation. Mm. And they they host these reunions every year. And I I go to them and I've gotten to get I've gotten to know a lot of the families uh, from the 100th Bomb Group, which has been really, really wonderful. Dan is one of my best friends. That's awesome. That's crazy. That even just makes me emotional. We are best friends. We talk all the time. Slight age difference between us, but we talk all the time. And um, we were talking last night on the phone. He's He is just one of my best friends, and I love him dearly. Can you imagine that my grandfather that day, the one plane that returns home, the day that he gets shot down and is a prisoner of war for the next 18 months, that the guy piloting the one plane that gets back, that his granddaughter one day is going to be friends with his son. I mean, that's crazy. That's a small world right there. Um, My grandfather uh, was a prisoner of war, like I said, for a year and a half. His parents didn't know if he was dead or alive. Uh, My grandmother loves to tell me that my grandfather's dad would call the White House every day demanding to know where his son was. Um, He was upset with the government, upset with the president, um, and they, you know, weren't 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 thrilled with the war um and uh despite you know the collective patriotism and uh love for our country right everybody had different opinions even back then Mm. people were divided um maybe not like we are now 
And my grandfather was taken to, um, after being interrogated and whatnot, he was taken to a prison camp. Um, and it was the prison camp. It was called Stalag Luf 3. And that is where The Great Escape happened. So if you ever have a chance to watch that movie with Steve McQueen, it's a great, great movie. Um, and... The next 18 months were really hard, but it was when he was transferred to another prison camp called Stalag 7A is when his luck got even worse. And that was after the death march um, in the snow and the conditions were awful. Um, the things that my grandfather went through uh, is crazy. You know, when I went to England uh, to see the set of Masters of the Air, the TV show that comes out on Apple this fall uh, that Hanks and Spielberg are doing that I mentioned, they recreated the war. They recreated these prison camps. I actually got to walk through a, a, a prison camp, like a to-scale prison camp, something that my grandfather would have been in. So mm -hmm. that was really kind of insane and surreal because they, they had it also like preserved as if like, you know, they, they built it as if it, it's like really like like I like I step back in time. Yeah. Right. And I went through like what the barracks would have been like and everything. It was crazy. I have pictures, but I'm not allowed to post them. OK, well, yeah. I'll show you. I'll show you privately. I was about to say, like, <laughs> you can at least show me. I won't post them. Or if I do, I'll just be like, ah, I got them off the Internet. But the, the thing that's interesting, the way that you talk about it is like so. So he was shot down. He was captured. It was very weird almost to hear him describe the relief to be captured. And, you know, when, because that was one thing that the, the German people, that if they knew any sentence, sentence in English, it was, for you, the war is over. And again, like, the your, your, your war is over, but now you kind of have a second war. I mean, he's POW number 3090. Like, that was, that was his new identity. And again... By the way, fun fact, yeah. I just want to tell you guys, just to show you the type of person that my grandfather was, and he also just loved research and meeting people. This is back before 23andMe. This is back before, like, Ancestry.com. My grandfather goes and somehow finds the family and the farm that he landed in decades later. Oh, wow. And he met the family and some of the people <coughs> that took him in. And he became friends with them. And they were pen pals. And they wrote letters to each other. But my grandfather went back there, right? Like, no hard feelings. My grandfather, and he writes about that in the book, my grandfather even ended up... Um, I mean, he writes in the book about saying that he hopes that the planes that he shot at, that those people survived, right? I mean, my grandfather ended up, like, having dinner and in, 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 in becoming friendly with different German pilots that shot at, shot at him. Chloe, let's, let's, let's dig into that a little bit, actually, because, you know, the, the very famous story that comes up every freaking Christmas is I think it was during World War One, whenever the two sides uh, played soccer together, like on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day or right. something like that. And then the next day they went back to to basically shelling each other to death and, and dying in trench warfare. OK, I'm trying to be careful because I don't want to go off into like conspiracy theory land and give anybody that's currently listening to this with a tinfoil hat on something to talk and about. And I wouldn't know the answers and I wouldn't know the answers anyway, but I can opine about what I think about what he was thinking. And he writes about it in the book. Right. Which he does. I guess my, my question is in the vein of is there are some men that go to war that want to even the score again, look at right after 9-11, right after uh uh, Pearl Harbor. These men want to go and protect their country, protect the homeland, all those different things. But then you hear these stories of, of veterans of the Vietnam War or the the GWAT or something like that, that they will befriend some of these some of these people. I guess GWAT's a little different because it's kind of hard to make a friend with a guy that's in the Taliban. But like these people that will kind of go back and it's like, 
it's almost like they didn't know why they were trying to kill one another. But it's like whenever we pause long enough to be like, there are forces beyond us and governments beyond us that are putting us here and we had no choice but to be here. But they didn't want to be like, they didn't want to be shooting at somebody else. That's almost like what I feel like your grandfather was almost reluctantly doing his job, if that makes sense. Well, I think that, look, for everybody, it's different. And, you know, people might not see each other as human or people might, you know, again, like you said, evening the score and for everybody's reason for enlisting or unless you're drafted is is, is different. Um, but what I will say is that a lot of this stuff came in hindsight, you know, like the saying goes, hindsight's twenty twenty. So in retrospect, my grandfather later in life had these realizations, whether he had these realizations in real time during the war, I'm not exactly sure. But what we do know is that later in life is when he sort of looked for these answers, saw each other as human. So I think that when you look back at my grandfather and the choices that he made later in life, whether he always felt this way or whether it was something like hindsight is twenty twenty, so they say, um, I think that's really true. You know, going back to the German farmer's field or meeting with German uh, pilots, I think that, you know, he writes in the book that, you know, we're all human and we all have our own truth and our own perspective and our own meaning and our own reasons for doing something. And at the end of the day, it's not black and white and it is complicated and it is complex. But my grandfather had a lot of empathy. And I think that, you know, when you're 19, 18, 19, 20 years old, you might view life and view war and view things differently than you might view it when you're 50, 60, 70 years old and a life well lived. You know, my grandfather died at 85. Mm -hmm. I know I, I should know this, but let's just pretend it's 85. It was 85 years old, I think. He writes the book in his 70s and it publishes when he's like about 80. That's, right. So wow. his perspectives are, you know, there's been a lot of time removed, a lot of time to think about it all. When you have a lot of time to marinate in the things that you experience, you have a lot of times to, to put things into different categories. And again, your your grandfather led a, a very successful life thereafter, uh, so much so that he almost to a degree got lost in his uh, success as as a as a businessman and as a family member and as a as a patriarch of y'all's family because that's easy to do when you're a successful person or whenever you have a lot of people that are depending on you or that like you is that you can kind of like compartmentalize some of those things that happened but I do want to kind of go all the way back. And again, guys, I'm going to say this for the million time in this podcast. There's so many details in the book. You have to get the book to read it for yourself to really get into it. Because at one point, obviously, he was liberated. And I've tried to put myself there, Chloe, where it's like, imagine me living under this uh, in this depraved state where I lose, you know, X number of pounds and I'm, I'm basically skin and bones. And then I'm liberated. And it's not freed, it's not saved, it's liberated. It's like a different thing. And that didn't mean the war was over for some of these people. Like some people died when they were trying to get their weight back up because we didn't know that you couldn't just feed candy bars to somebody that was, you know, uh, that lost 80 pounds of their normal body weight. So for a lot of that, that's not like this glorious story for everybody. But take us back to his liberation because, man, it's just, it's such a crazy thing that most of us will literally, thank God, never experience. I know. Well, okay, let me get some of my notes out because I want to I know there's a lot of people here that are that are listening to this who might be experts on this. So I want to make sure um, that I that I say it correctly. So um, it well, they, this was in Mooseburg, the prison camp, the second prison camp. And I just want to tell you all it was designed to hold about 10 to 12,000 people. And it had over 100,000 prisoners there. So first of all, like, 
this was a tough time. Yeah. Uh, sort of made the previous prison camp look a bit like a country club. Um, the buildings were infested with fleas, bedbugs, lice. Um, he was there for about uh, just, just a couple of months. And they had been seeing P-51s flying over the camp. Um, and they knew that that something was up, that that, that something um, was coming. Um, my grandfather, he developed pneumonia, dysentery, uh, like I said, lice. He had lost a ton of weight. Um, and the 14th Armored Division um, showed up on April 28th. And uh, they went out and they had wanted to have a, a truce. And the Germans wanted to negotiate the surrender of this prison camp. Um, and the American forces demanded that the following morning uh, that the camp had to be uh, unconditionally surrendered. But the Germans, they wanted to have some negotiations. Um, and that is when the Americans, you know, refused to negotiate and they started attacking. Um, and there was a like a like a little mini war going on right outside of the prison camp and they all knew you know my grandfather writes about it they 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 knew that hopefully good news was coming their way um, but this was a very emotional moment uh for my grandfather general Patton, who very famous uh you know like breaks down the gates in his tank um, and he, you know, the gates come crashing down. The American flag is hoisted up uh, nearby in the center of town. Um, and P Patton is, you know, walking around the prison camp and looking at all of these POWs. And he walks up to my grandfather, who's standing there with a group of people. And my grandfather loved to tell the story growing up that General Patton walked over where my grandfather was standing and he looked at them and took to look at how terrible they looked, right? And how malnourished they looked. And he said, excuse my language, he said, I'm gonna kill these sons of bitches for this. And we would always laugh when grandpa would say that because yeah. he never cursed. Um, but yeah, really powerful um, moment. Um, and then, you know, my grandfather eventually made his way home. It was not a, a quick, quick time to get home. Uh, he was transferred to France to something called Camp Lucky Strike. Um, and then eventually uh, he was on a, a part of a ship convoy that took 12 days to cross the ocean and that he got to Boston. Um, and then he eventually called his parents who he hadn't talked to. Um, looks like what I have here in my notes, he hadn't heard, they hadn't heard from him since September 1944, and it was now June 1945. Um, and his mother answered the phone crying, and his parents, they came and picked him up, and he said, that was it. That was it. And he never talked about it again. He pocketed it away. He went back to school on the GI Bill. He went back to Emory University, uh, majored in business with a minor in science. And then uh, not that long later, he meets my grandmother, has four kids with her, and he goes on to live this life. And then he ended up working with airplanes his whole life. He worked for Lockheed Martin. And as a lawyer, he negotiated those airplane contracts. Um, but he had a love of planes that, you know, was a part of his life till the day he died. Um, but he never talked about his experiences in the war until he had grandkids. So my mom and her her brothers and sisters, they didn't know what grandpa, what their dad had been through mm. at all. My mom says, and my mom writes a section of the foreword, if you guys get a chance to read it, my mom says that she didn't know 
really anything that my grandfather went through until she read his book. And that's something that I know to be true of other folks that have written books. These are more people that have uh, fought in wars here recently that when their kids get of age where it's appropriate, they're like, whoa, like dad did this. And it's like, and then that sparks up some conversations because that's maybe not something that you sit around, you know, while you're on the couch at a movie night with your seven-year-old or something like that. But it's something like as they age, it's like, (laughs) hey, you need to understand what dad went through to come back to you. And like, you know, just different things like that. It's just a different level. But obviously, as you mentioned earlier, Chloe, uh, your grandfather's story is going to be featured prominently in an upcoming Apple TV plus television show called Masters of the Air. So that is starring Tom Hanks, but it's a project that's being headed up by Steven Spielberg. So this is a big deal. I don't know exactly when the release date or all that is, but maybe you can give us some some details that you have on that. And I guess what is what was your family's or, or uh, Frank's estate's involvement with that to make sure that they get the story right? Good question. Well, so I'm sure most of the listeners out there have either heard of or seen Band of Brothers. So that was produced by Hanks, Steven uh, Spielberg and Tom Hanks. And then they did a TV show called The Pacific um, about the Navy during World War II. So Band of Brothers was about the Army. Then they did the Navy. And then they always wanted to tell the air war. It's expensive. It takes a long time. They optioned a book that Everybody Should Read by Don Miller. He's a historian, and it's called Masters of the Air. And they decided many years ago, the year I believe that my grandfather died, the year the book came out in 2007, Masters of the Air, they optioned it, Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg, and they've been trying ever since to to bring this to the screen. So it's on Apple TV, comes out in the fall. There's no premiere date just yet. Like I said, it stars Austin Butler. Jude Law's son is in it. A lot of great actors. The actor playing my grandfather's name is Jonas Moore. Um, my grandfather's not the star of this thing, uh, but I'm just grateful that he's a part of it. And um, you'll you'll see him. Keep your eyes out for, you know, Captain Frank Murphy. And actually, fun fact, Jonas Moore, who plays my grandfather, he's a great British guy. Uh, he actually narrates the audio version of this book, Luck of the Draw. Of my grandpa's book. So I thought that was a really full circle moment. And I was really glad that that happened. No, nobody consulted us. I mean, luckily, they had the book. They had my grandfather's book. The writer, uh, head writer of the show, John Orloff, who also was a part of making Band of Brothers happen. He used my grandfather's book to write the series, uh, to write Masters of the Air. But they didn't option my grandfather's book. That's like legal jargon for like buying buying the rights to mm. the book. Um, but they definitely used the book as a reference, especially for the prisoner of war sections of the show. Um, but I haven't seen it. I went to the set. I know it's going to be amazing. I know that it's going to teach a lot of people about World War II, the 8th Air Force, the 100th Bomb Group, people who don't know about it, hopefully attract a younger group of people you know, like like teach like this younger generation about what these young guys did. So I think that also when you have a name like Austin Butler, people are going to want to watch it. So, you know, he's having like a big, a big moment, a big year. So being an entertainment reporter, it's really cool for me because it's like this like crazy intersection of like my professional life. It's a show I would be covering anyway. And now I get to like, you know, have my grandfather be part of it. But we didn't know that my grandfather was going to be a character until like, years and years later and it was just like really casually mentioned to us that he's a character and i tried to just always keep my cool <laughs> yeah you know because i would be excited about this even if my grandfather wasn't in it right it's not about me it's not about us we just we're just excited but i do know that my grandfather would be so so happy so excited and you know tom hanks i reached out to him to see if he'd give us a quote for the cover of my grandfather's book 
and he did. And I'm so grateful to him and everybody over at Playtone and Amblin. You know, I'm, I'm so excited because I love these men and women and these families and all of them. And I'm just excited for their stories to be told. And that's something that you're doing. That's something that you and your family have dedicated uh, your lives, you know, huge portions of your lives to make sure that that continues to happen. So we've weaved in and out of all kinds of details in this conversation. I really appreciate all the time that you've given me. But I do have one last question for you. What is the legacy of Frank Murphy and how do you want him to be remembered? Mm. Kind, a kind, wonderful American. And I just hope that everybody, everybody knows that, like I said, we all have our hard, but grandpa worked really hard on this book. And the greatest gift that any listener out there can do for these men would be buy the book, buy the book, give it to a friend, read it, share it. Don't put it up on your shelf, give it to somebody and know that every dollar is going to go to the mighty eighth air force museum, which, you know, these are, um, institutions that, you know, we, we should be preserving legacy. These museums, they need to exist, but they need funding, right? And they need money to exist. Same with the 100th Bomb Group Foundation. I mean, these are wonderful organizations that you can look up and all the money goes there. And so it's what my grandfather would have wanted. And I just hope that people read it and also like it and learn something new and maybe leave feeling a little bit inspired. And, and, and for those people that love to read a book before a TV show or a movie comes out, here you go. Read this, read Masters of the Air, and you'll, you'll be all set for the series when it comes out. Well, Chloe, that is all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? <laughs> thank you. Just a big thank you. Absolutely. Chloe, I hear I'm going to mess up your I'm first name and I was worried about messing up your last name. Chloe Malas, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Thank you for having me. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Chloe Malas. But before I let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I've got links for you today. I've got two of them. One is a link to the Amazon link where you could buy Luck of the Draw. And then also there is a website that has a whole lot more information and it digs into some of the stuff that we talked about today. That is the Luck of the Draw website. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.